Hi, everybody. David Noor. I want to welcome you back to another episode of our Intelligent Growth with my business partner, Jen Cords. Hello, Jen. Hi, Noor. How are you? Great, thanks. For our audience, uh, we are live on LinkedIn and Facebook, on uh, Twitter and YouTube. And we're going to, on a weekly basis, rotate these live sessions on my personal profile on these, on Jen's profile, on the Nor Group profile. And we would encourage you, if you haven't already, uh, we use a link for, uh, I think Jen, it's called Add This Event, where it, where it magically adds it to my calendar. Is that is that true? Is that the tool? That is the tool, and that is what it does. Great. So uh, I would encourage you to use that link to add these episodes to your calendar. I don't know about you. If it doesn't get on my calendar, it doesn't get done. Uh, I know some of you also like to watch the recording and binge watch some of those. Uh, so that's one of the things that I want to bring to your attention. Number two Jen and I are going to try to shorten these. There's a lot of good content we can share. We just realize everybody's busy and we want to get to the really the heart of the message, the heart of the content in each of these episodes. So we may not go the full hour, but our goal is to, to make these a little tighter. Uh, number three, we repurpose these live streams. So if you are able to join us live, we'd encourage you to jump in with your questions, your comments. You're going to see us uh, really share, comment, more updates, more reminders about these things. I encourage you. This is for you. Ben, with question comments you may have, uh, if uh, you listen to a recording after, growth, sharing insights on. Uh, revenue growth on the intersection of marketing, sales, and customer success, uh, the integration of those into really driving intelligent, again, as, as the title hopefully conveys, intelligent and hopefully profitable growth for our enterprise clients. So today's episode, we're going to talk a lot about this idea of M&A, specifically digital and relational pitfalls. Uh, we continue to see uh, both our existing clients, but also conversations we've brought into uh, of, of a couple really big challenges. And we think opportunities. And they tend to revolve most of them around these two issues, either some sort of a technology issue or some sort of a cultural one. And, and, and we, we're not alone. There's a, a, a fantastic um, uh, uh, research by the folks at Accenture an economist uh, that talks a lot about this global M&A survey, look at the top three. The top three challenges in M&A from a success factor, right kind of planning and execution of it, the due diligence, and then the culture. And if you pull back the culture, it's relational. Jen, uh, comments on this? Well, a lot of times teams look very high level or they dig into areas that they feel need the due diligence, like financing or HR, things like that. They don't necessarily dig into the actual tools or the tech stack or the data or how the teams run. And so it is really looking at that holistic view that makes an M&A event uh, more profitable. So uh, it's exactly right. Philosophically, we really do believe that we're more digitally connected than ever. Our average client, Jen, I think you rattled off some numbers. How many, how many different technologies are they using? 
most companies today are using an average of 50 to 75 tools within their tech stack. And that's only one section of their business. And that's generally marketing, sales, customer success. That's not including if they have engineering, product, HR, any of that. So 50 to seven technologies. So we're digitally connected, yet we, we genuinely believe that we're more disconnected than ever before. So at this customer lifecycle journey, I know you've seen we're big believers of the left-hand side of this infinity loop really focused and really amplifies the marketing function and, and highly integrated into kind of the sales motions. The relationship starts at four, which is really when someone buys. And particularly in the subscription economy, your ability to really engage, your ability to influence, your ability to really deliver impact, material impact in their business, and eventually, you know, create not just satisfied clients, but evangelists out of those clients. I recently read a great Harvard Business Review article on net promoter score 3.0, where the number itself, people have started gaming that. So the article and the original founder of NPS and several Bain partners were talking about, is it driving real growth? Is it driving a growth strategy? Which has led us to create a scorecard from this kind of thought leadership. Jen, talk a little about a partnership with Versalytics and the scorecard. Yeah, so the par partnership with Versalytics has been really exciting because we are able to take a lot of this data that we've been collecting from the work we do with our global clients and not only giving a qualitative score, but also a functional and, and systematic way for them to improve their score and really see where they can dig in and get those high level recommendations of what they can uh, attack today. And so with Versalytics, uh, we have questions that, that people can answer and then it gives them a score in each one of the phases in the infinity loop. And then it also gives you an overarching holistic score of what is, what is your uh, customer lifecycle journey. And what's really interesting about this is when we ask different departments or different functions within the same company, do they actually highlight the same strengths and struggles or do they, they highlight and see things from a different perspective? So couple that with, again, uh, PwC does a great annual survey of their global CEOs, 4,400 global CEOs in the most Got a lot of uh, you know executives thinking about how, where, and how are we investing time, effort, resources? Where and how can we bring uh, really best of our organizations to the table? Uh, look, look at the key categories: changing customer demands or preferences, changing in regulation, labor or skill shortage. Look at now where the CEOs are spending their time and effort, automating processes and systems. Exactly. The topic we're talking about is one of the potential pitfalls if you don't focus on this in the M&A process. Upskilling the workforce, cultural issue, deploying technology, digital issue. So every one of these becomes, we believe, one of the two fundamental buckets that we can...
what these CEOs, what these executives really talk about, really bring in and think through their challenges, their investment. So continuing, like you gotta, you gotta go with the flow, right? When the technology knocks you out, that's the part of the best part of our world, right? Let's <laughs> just blank for a while. Is that what happened? When I joined back in, yes, it was blank for a minute. You weren't here. The audience was here. The clock was still going. So I love it. Right? So so yeah, people sure. know this is live and it's real, and and we're we're just rolling with it. So what we so were let's talking about again, <laughs> right? So so talk amongst yourselves. So we're talking about tech integration challenges and integration areas that are not fully complete. So if you look at the black boxes of systems and processes, people's and organization, you know, customers and go to market, geographic and legal entities, look at the difficulty level versus not really fully integrated. And Jen, my question of you is if you don't fully integrate those four black boxes, doesn't that create a ripple effect kind of down the road? Absolutely, it does. And as companies acquire or get bigger and scale, those problems by not integrating those four black boxes just exponentially create downstream effects and other problems that you may not foresee today. And so, for example, systems and processes, when one project that I did in the past, the company acquired another one and they just chose to leave their database where it was. And they're just like, well, we'll just pull in that data in our data lake and vis visualize it that way, which is a solution, but it is not one that when the sellers start selling the combined product, that in those insights are still in a database they may not have access to. So they're not actually getting all the insights and information that could help them do their jobs better. So by keeping them siloed, you're actually creating further problems as you grow. And and they get exponentially, I think, uglier as well. <laughs> and along those lines, again, McKinsey also talks a lot about this, the best in class 
integration management office really prioritizes, and, and they keep calling it a focused on IT and digital. We believe increasingly every business is digital. So if that blueprint, if that roadmap isn't part of the integration management office, it, it is, and for most deals it is, it, it just regrettably, it, it many of them are still focused on legacy IT, which again, you cannot ignore but is we don't see as much kind of forward thinking in terms of digital. So what are the processes that are unnecessarily overcomplicated or manual in labor or just labor intensive that I think Jen m and I've always seen m and as an opportunity to not just remain status quo, but really rethink, reimagine, reinvent what we're doing through digital. It definitely is. It's a time to restructure. It's a time to reimagine how things are done. It's a time to reintegrate and change the way systems are working within the various teams. One of the other biggest pitfalls that I, I see with M&A events and all companies is most companies today aren't putting a, enough focus on documentation and retaining that internal knowledge base as they do grow and scale their systems and how they do business. And so when an M&A event comes up, they're either scrambling or they have pieces of it and they don't really have that holistic view. And so this technology blueprint that's on here that's highlighted that uh, McKinsey focuses on, it really does dig into the need for an actual system architecture, actual documentation, a list of admins, because you do really need to understand what that full landscape looks like to know what tools need to get integrated. Where do you have the duplication? So, so, so let's talk, let me ask you a follow-up question on that. Let's mm -hmm. talk, a, a recent uh, opportunity we were, we were invited to talk to CEO about is, you know, one company was acquiring, you know, one tech company was acquiring another tech company, you know, they had, you know, both companies had Salesforce. Obviously, we don't need two instances of them. But I think one had Marketo, one had HubSpot. How, do, how is it other than flipping a coin? <laughs> how do you figure out which ones we're going to move forward with? So that really comes down to what the outcomes the business is trying to achieve. So and also the size of company at that time. So HubSpot is, is great because it can scale from a really small team to a really robust team. But if you're starting to get into quotes and CPQ and a whole bunch of other functionality that Salesforce lends, HubSpot's not going to be your best bet because it just doesn't have that functionality and you're going to be bolting on a whole bunch of tools, thus creating more tech bloat versus streamlining your tech stack. And so it, you really have to look strategically at what the company is trying to achieve and then look at the technology to make sure that it actually fits. And with regard to the Salesforce, don't just take data from one and create custom fields in the other and just merge it all together because that never works out well either. So, so to build on that for a second, you know, let's say we decide to go with one platform versus the other. What happens culturally to the tech? It's not just a tech platform. What happens to that whole team that was working on the platform we choose not to move forward with? Generally, ops teams are structured in a way that they have experience in all the different technologies. So they'd shift to a different tool or they'd shift to taking over the same responsibilities within the new tool that's being kept. They'd also be 
absolutely critical in that transition period to make sure all the workflows, all the data, all the templates, whatever was in there actually gets transferred over. And so they get to be that, that glue almost that, that ties the two pieces together. And again, for our audience, we want to reinforce that technology blueprint that, again, McKenzie reinforces should be part of the integration management office. We believe that should be the digital, the digital kind of forward thinking, forward visibility, as much focus on the legacy, which is important. But how do we also leverage? This is a, what do they say? Never waste a good chaos, never good, you know, a crisis. This is an opportunity to level up. This is an opportunity to really go back. And if you look at the parentheses, the processes, the systems, the data. And as Jen mentioned, what business outcomes are we after that digital could dramatically elevate? Along the same lines, if you think of tech enablement, accelerating that value capture, this is going to become critical from an acquisition is all about those digital capabilities that can be achieved in several different ways. So as you can see, obviously, that the traditional legacy IT, HR, other kind of we call them business enablers, but basically the support functions, obviously finance, sales and marketing is a big, big part of our focus. We're also seeing that, that again, sales and marketing heavily needs the supply chain or manufacturing or tightly integrated into customer support and services. So there's really unique opportunities for digital to impact very different parts of the business. Jen, in looking at these different functions, where do you start? Where do you start in looking at the planning? Where do you start in phasing out kind of a rollout, rollout approach? Where do you start with, in essence, very different stakeholders who all have, and rightfully so, good intentions, but their own functions as, hey, kind of, I need, I need help. I need, we need to be in front of the line. So it is always difficult. Uh, most everybody will say that certain departments or ops place favorites or IT place favorites. And that's not really true. It's just, it's who's the loudest squeaky wheel gets the, the grease. <laughs> but in reality, it is the best way to handle an M&A event is have people on the teams that both are keeping the wheels on the bus in essence, and then another team or a subset of that that is then handling the integration or the, the merging or the deduplication of things and reinventing that process. Both teams need to be obviously informed and in the conversations and understand the roadmap, but it really does come down to who are the tactical people who can keep everything going smoothly and business moving forward, and then who are the people who can step away almost and then recreate everything. And then to your point, logically roll out the new process. So keep doing what you're doing. Everybody keep selling. And then in time, have those training and enablement sessions that is like, okay, this is our new process. Here's your documentation. This is where you'll find it. And it's those, those trainings that happen on a recurring basis is how you'll get everybody bought into it. I, I've long believed that relationships go bad with misaligned expectations. And, and I think that that merger integration office early on kind of setting the roadmap, setting that digital kind of function, setting the roadmap of here's what to expect in the, you know, and I, and I, and I love you and your team's approach in really thinking through sprints. So in the first sprint, we're going to focus on IT, HR, and other support functions, right? We got to be able to continue payroll. We got to be able to, you know, legal has got to be able to review documents. 
and and by the way, we're abandoning both legacy systems and we're really transforming that to a new digital cloud-based approach. Again, overarching kind of lens. Then we're going to move over to finance because we've got to be able to get invoices out and we've got to pay our vendors, right? And really do our kind of reporting and analysis. And as Jen mentioned, the more complex the environment, the more this has to be well thought out and really planned out. From a sales and marketing standpoint, one thing we found really useful is, and it goes to the relational, if we put the customer at the center and, and those other functions as almost like the target logo, as the surrounding kind of enablers of that customer experience, customer value creation, who touches that customer most frequently, most impactfully, most, you know, is it, how prevalent is it? How urgent is it? And, and again, will it dramatically increase, enhance, elevate their experience? Do we win more business? So that's one way we've seen an opportunity to really raise the bar on the digital transformation of the marketing, sales, and certainly customer success functions. And it, and it becomes critical in, again, paving the roadmap, proactively communicating what to expect and when. The so other- Something on that before yeah, we move on. Please. Uh, making sure the customer, I mean, they'll, they'll care that you now are merging with something else and the world is changing. But at the end of the day, they really just want their problem solved. So to your point, putting them at the center, making sure that you do what's in their best interest and, and, and enable your team, give them the power to take care of that customer, even if it may not be quote unquote right. Um, right in the process of things. But if the customer's problem is taken care of and it's not losing a ton of money, but the customer is now happy and they're still a customer, that's that's most important. And you can figure out the paperwork later. You can figure out, well, that wasn't quite the right thing or it wasn't the right price point. You can figure all that out later. The customer will not care if you don't solve their problem or you make them jump through a million hoops. And, and again, that's why that kind of customer centricity becomes critical in this kind of digital, uh, you know, planning digital rollout of an M&A function. The, the other thing that, that we're big believers of is if you're an acquiring entity, the integration team has to prioritize the function specific kind of platforms by categories. Is it not, not everything is going to be urgent, not every hair, you know, you cannot address every hair is on fire problem. Is it strategic? Is it leave us as it is? Is it kind of merge and retire? Is it deprecate? Is it retire and write off? You know, so these are really five distinct categories for digital that we don't believe we're having enough conversations around. We don't believe we're talking through enough of these things. Uh, Jen, comments on this? Well, I would say one of the biggest things that ops teams need to do specifically in an M&A event is, and it's hard, is check your ego at the door. A lot of ops teams get kind of territorial because they are having to constantly fix things and keep things running. And so it is just don't come in my sandbox because I don't want you to break something. You've got to check that at the door and understand that there's now more hands to get this work done. And maybe it is a pet project and it just it isn't a priority anymore. And as hard as it is, you just have to kind of accept it. And so really being strategic and taking a step back of what is best for the business, what's going to help us grow and move forward 
is is going to be most impactful here uh, and not just hang on to things because you can. Again, these five buckets could, could the overarching umbrella could be how do you find and maximize digital value in every M&A deal? And again, you know, at the core, just like I keep coming back to the target logo, at the core should be strategic. This is the future of, and it says it right there, the consolidated entity, the combined organization, not mine and yours, not us and them, but the combined entity, this platform, this environment, this tech stack is strategic to our future. This is kind of what we're doubling down on. Others, you know, we don't have to change much. Others, we can kind of leave it be. And then the rest you see, we're going to merge and we're going to retire something. We're going to retire something and write it off. Hey, we invested in that. It's in our past. We're going to move forward and we're going to move forward in a really productive way. Uh, the other critical area that, that we often think about is if you think of a due diligence approach and series of steps, I'm, I'm a grocery list kind of a guy. So is there a clear testable deal thesis, right? This is a typical M&A approach. Use the deal thesis to focus diligent efforts on different issues that really matter. I was having a conversation with a, a really sharp, uh, oddly enough, HR executive. And he said, uh, so many business leaders don't understand what really matters when it comes to HR, when it comes to people and talent. And regrettably, his comment, which I subscribe to, a lot of HR people make what really matters unnecessarily overcomplicated. Well, guess what? I can substitute HR for tech, HR for IT, HR for digital, and convey the same thing. We lose sight of what really matters, and we make what really matters unnecessarily overcomplicated. So I mean, playing, we're going to talk about playing defense. Then how do we go on offense? How do we dive into details of rigorously quantifying the deal? And, and then really thinking about kind of day one, from a from a, a a culture standpoint, which again we'll talk more about in a second, Jen. I would say the creating making things unnecessarily complex, a lot of times also comes back to not explaining the why. Um, in many organizations, it's still well that's above your pay grade type mentality, and that doesn't help people to get get on board and get bought in, and and it it, it becomes a cultural thing of well it's on a need to know basis and. I don't get to know anything. I'm just running around doing things. And so that doesn't give people the, the internal feeling of they're adding value because they don't know exactly what they're doing. So in an M&A event, it's also helpful to explain the why. Why did we acquire this company or why are we being acquired? What is the what is the greater picture? And helping people see that is going to is going to get them feeling involved and that it also will help from a cultural perspective because it won't be an us and them or they bought us or, or whatever. It's, it's going to be a more cohesive unit. And if the leadership talks in that way that we are a team and it's not a us and them on day one, then it'll really help the rest of the team get in, get in line with that same mentality. Uh, we, we had mentioned earlier playing, you know, defense first and going on offense. Uh, this is really, really important in kind of every M&A opportunity. And as you can see on the screen, you know, defense is asking questions like, what are the scenarios for potential market growth? Defense is, what could disrupt the market growth? Uh, what are the customer feedbacks and loyalty metrics for the, 
you know, target products and services. So asking, this is very much the Socratic method of asking some really great questions about how do we defend our current position? But, you know, you cannot win with defense alone. Whereas, you know, if you, if you think about defense as a standalone asset quality, the offense then becomes, how are we stronger together? I, one of my books, the title is Co-Creation. And the premise is you cannot, none of us have all the answers. You cannot get there alone. And you're dramatically better off if you co-create a solution with someone else. If you think about it, that's exactly what an m event is. So the, the offensive side says, okay, what are the right additional, incremental, if not exponential assets we can bring that makes this joint offering that much stronger? What are the potential sources of value creation? How do we combine companies, leadership, talent, culture, tech platform to really be that much stronger? We love when we've done this, the cultural fit. Who's our go forward team? Well, it might be our CFO or it might be theirs based on who the, and I want to know that as quickly as possible. This goes back to the relational pitfalls is when there's lack of information, people are going to make things up. Did I tell you we're going out of business, <laughs> right? Wait, where did that come from? Well, because you haven't shared anything. So the sooner you can really share, who's that go for team? Um, and I have to put a plug in for a, a dear friend, Price Pritchard. I recently went through the Pritchard uh, M&A uh, kind of certification, you know, program and, and training and development. And it's a fantastic group. They've got unbelievable depth in kind of merger integration uh, insights. And this is one of the things they talked a lot about is the sooner you understand that go for team, the sooner you communicate who are those folks that are going to be part of our future and others that as humanely as possible, as quickly as possible, hey, I want you to stay through this this you know closing of this deal with us and then let's kind of find a way to either help you find another role or help you find another company but but really figuring out the joint opportunities the joint value cre- you know creation up down and across the organization becomes invaluable jen defense versus offense i would say a lot of companies spend more time on defense than they do on the offense side and from a cultural perspective, I, th- I think that they also don't, they don't intend, there's no intentionality related to it. And so they just feel that, oh, our cultural culture is strong enough. The new people just kind of find their way. And culture is something that you really have to nurture and grow and hold each other accountable to. And so if there's those core values or the, that core mission that you're going on, making sure that everybody knows what that is, is really important. And I don't think companies in M&A events necessarily spend enough time on that. So moving on to, again, uh, just a few minutes talking about the culture. We're, we're, I was fascinated by this data, again, by PwC. 65% of acquirers say cultural issues hampered the creation of value in their last deal. So if you pull back that, I'm always, A, full disclosure, I'm allergic to vagueness. So cultural issues is just such a broad umbrella. What does that mean? What does that look like? What, you know, tell me more about that. So, lead, you know, you peel back and, the, the, you know, PwC kind of encompassed leadership and management styles, their collaboration and teamwork, uh, autonomy and involvement, adaptability. 
uh, work environment and employee experience, those are the ones they 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 bucket a lot in this in this cultural issues. And interestingly enough, the digital tools percentage of the software that's used. Look at where it impacts communication and change management, cultural integration. I would submit that this is a massive and an undervalued, underprioritized, underinvested in part of inevitably every M&A deal, which is the relationship component before, during, and after. Most of us did not propose to our significant other on the first date. Yet way too many people jump into an M&A event without asking those relationship kind of questions, without really thinking about the respective values of the two organizations. Is this a highly centralized command and control versus highly decentralized, empowered, your call, you go do it, servant leadership environment? Just those two styles alone, if I just take the first red line, couldn't be more of a clash. And if you're a command and control environment and you go acquire a company where that CEO is just let people do kind of what they want and what they need and I'll work for you, let me know what roadblocks I can remove out of your way, you're going to have a revolt on your hand because <laughs> now that acquiring company is going to say, wait, 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 we got to report to some corporate with everything we're doing. And we need 18 signatures to get things done. No, thank you. I'm out of here. That's when they start taking calls from recruiters. That's when they start looking at other opportunities where they wouldn't have otherwise. So really thinking about, really prioritizing the relationship, breadth, depth, philosophical, internal investments in those relationships, as well as external. Here's one that I've worked on recently. The acquiring company was a direct sales force. We go to market direct. We have our own direct channel or direct sales force. We go to market direct. We have the most control over our deals. They acquired a company that went to market exclusively through channels. Take a guess of how that one worked out. It's pretty much right up there with oil and water, right? It's like, no, no, no. We want our own sales reps. No, 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 no. We go to market through channel partners. And it just creates all kinds of conflict. Jen? Which, which really is a missed opportunity because if, if one is excellent at channels and one is excellent at direct, finding that symbiotic relationship between the two and merging the data and all of that and finding a path forward would have made them leader in their field if they weren't already already because then they're covering both, both facets of selling really well. And they, they keep their people focused on what they do and then they would have the the two different departments. So in my mind, that's a, that's a missed opportunity and it's not something that needs to stay oil and water. And, and, and exactly the reason of what you mentioned, ego, right? So when, when the, the person that is our go forward comes from the acquiring and says, hey, we're going to go to market direct and ignores or passively kind of dismisses the channel part, everybody sees it. And, and, and only when the CEO steps in and says, no, 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 we're going to be a hybrid, now you're leveraging best of best of both worlds. So um, the relational part, as I said earlier, we don't believe gets enough attention in the due diligence. There's been several engagements where I've gone in on behalf of the private equity firm as the relationship expert to really understand the relationship dynamics both within and external to the organization. And I come back with an assessment, we call it relationship signature index of where these folks are on 
kind of their efforts, where they are on internal relationship development efforts, where they are on external, what are some strengths, what are some challenges, what are some of the things you would have to really think about, really prioritize in the short, medium, long term in terms of relationally. And then, you know, what's what's what I'm fascinated, Jen, is by when when we do surveys and then we do interviews and all of that tells us one piece of data. And then you and your team go look at their Salesforce or go look at their portal. And it tells us a totally different, like, is this really the same company? Because what they said they would do and what they actually did in the technology environment was completely different. Well, and so on that note, uh, Nor, when you're when you're going in on behalf of the, the PE firms, like how often are you finding either the acquiring company or the company being acquired, maybe like, brushes over maybe some of their shortfalls and they're not really giving the whole picture because maybe it makes their leadership look bad. Like how often are we finding that and, and how does it really affect the M&A process after it's been done? I, I love I love that question because Jen, it's, it, is, it is unequivocally the curse of knowledge. So the more tenured, the more seasoned, the more deals they've done, they assume every deal exactly the same and... Yeah, we've seen it. Yeah, we, yeah, we're already doing that. Yeah, we, we got that covered. And that's when a two by four comes at your head and it has a rusted nail in it because you every relationship is unique. It's different. Every organization, every culture based on its geography, based on its market, based on its top leadership builds a relationship almost like fingerprint. And, and you've seen the same, whether it's digital or it's relational, they kind of gloss over it. Yeah, we got that covered. And then when you when when we run into roadblocks, when we run into challenges, you peel back that onion and you realize it was relationship questions we didn't ask early on or we didn't pay attention to early on. And I'm reminded of the old adage that bad prospects become horrible customers, <laughs> right? Bad acquisition, relationship environments in the due diligence process do not improve after the close date. They do not magically and mystically become profoundly more valuable and different after we roll them into our organization. They become a bigger mess. They become a lot a of times that's when the skeletons really come tumbling out of the closet. After you sign, you figure out you know, forget the NPS score. You figure out sentiment analysis of how they're abandoning and why there's such a big churn or that, you know, you start to look on glass door and you realize the comments about what a toxic environment it is and how the leadership is just couldn't, couldn't hit leadership if it was water and they fell out of a boat. So they might be technically brilliant or they might be very good at from an industry perspective but they are clueless when it comes to building and nurturing really valuable internal relationships. So, yeah, that's what I said. The relationship part in particular, I believe before, during, and certainly after is one of the, the, the biggest under thought of, underutilized, under you know, appreciated assets in, in every M&A deal. Jen, probably a lot like digital is and, and, and really thinking about digital as a massive differentiator. How about you? What, what do you see organizations really think about and do well and where are they neglecting most often? 
Hmm. I would say we'll start with the neglecting most often. A lot of times it is just that those foundational pieces. It is the data integrity. It is having a roadmap, documentation, not being territorial, uh, just having a whole bunch of tech or plugging in tech because they think it's going to quickly solve a problem and not actually assigning an owner or understanding the, the purpose for that technology. So just kind of keeping it all, it, it was working, we'll find a way to just kind of duct tape it all together. So that's that's what I see most often. And that those are challenges for every company. What they do well is when that leadership really does rally the entire team and make sure that the acquiring team and the team being acquired and the, and the team that's that was there already, that they merge together, that they assign kind of partners. So culturally, everybody feels integrated, that there aren't us and them type meetings. Everybody comes to the same meetings. Uh, and then just reinforcing those standards and reinforcing kind of that why and where you're going and how you're going to get there is really, really what I see most companies do well, especially from the digital side. So for our audience, uh, if you've gotten value out of this, I would encourage you to, to kind of a couple of things. One, uh, and, and we'll, we'll continue to share insights around M&A nuances that we see. Uh, we haven't even touched on data and data maturity and cybersecurity. I mean, there, there's just so Wait, much. Data is important. <laughs> those, those might be useful. Those might be useful in terms of. Who needs phone numbers and emails? perceived value of the M&A deal. Um, so, so we'll continue to kind of, um, you know, share perspectives and insights on future kind of M&A topics. But again, I keep, Jen, from your world, I keep thinking of data. I keep thinking of cybersecurity. I think it keep thinking of business continuity, right? I, we still have a business to run and each business, by the way, massive opportunities for risk between when we announce a deal and when the deal closes, so we still have to run in parallel. We still have to run as two independent entities where, yeah, there's a war room and the, or the deal room and we're you know really doing our due diligence and thinking through the, the, the merger integration. Uh, and, you know, the integration office is really doing their, their, their parts, but there's still a lot of things that could go sideways. Similarly, uh, in, in relationships, which we're going to talk, you know, probably best to dedicate a whole session on just what I said about before, during, and after, what are the relationship components that um, astute acquirers need, need to think about? The, the other thing that we'd like to do probably in future episodes is bring on several, uh, you know, one friend was a general counsel when he joined a company, um, 900 million in revenue. When he re recently retired, 20 billion in revenue. And they did a whole bunch of acquisitions. So it'd be great to have Bob join us um, one of our clients recently, uh, this is, this is fascinating, rolled up three head-on market competitors. A private equity firm came in and rolled up. Imagine people you've been dragging through the mud as competitors now are now your colleagues. So how do we let that be water under the bridge and go to market as one entity? Their CIO uh, and chief innovations officer is a, is a good friend. And so it'd be great um, to really have the first person perspective of having gone through these environments of kind of lessons, lessons they've learned. So I hope you'll continue to join us again. We'll continue to promote future episodes. 
we got some great ones coming up. Uh, we're going to talk to Lisa Campbell of One Trust about the trust operating system. We're going to talk uh, a little about uh, Jen. I want you to talk about the the job descriptions you found online. Oh, uh, yeah. So just talking about RevOps and the roles and and. I guess we can call it the search for the unicorn is what most people are looking for right now. And so just making sure that people are actually aligning who they're looking for and what roles they're trying to fill. So uh, again, we, ch- uh, we try to go live each Tuesday at noon Eastern, uh, both on these various social platforms, but also uh, via our podcast. So we'd encourage you to come join us uh, and jump in with your questions, comments, uh, and if we can address any of those for you, it'd be great to have you come come back and join us. Tuesdays at 11, sorry, 11 Central, I keep saying 11, noon Eastern, uh, our Intelligent Growth live stream. On behalf of Jen Kors, I'm David North. Thanks for putting up with our tech glitches today. It always happens periodically. I will look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, everybody. All the best. Bye-bye.